You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking to Loris Crow about how and why the Zig programming language's new compiler builds itself, also known as bootstrapping, using WebAssembly, of all things. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, bootstrapping a compiler via WebAssembly. All right, Loris, welcome back. Hey, Richard. Thank you for having me here again. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about this bootstrapping a compiler from WebAssembly thing, because this was on like Hacker News and Lobsters and all these like social media things. And I saw a lot of like buzz about it. And I also saw a lot of people saying things that I was pretty sure were not right. But also, I'm not, you know, (laughs) nearly as directly involved in this stuff as you are. So I'd be kind of curious to get your perspective on it. So for those who aren't familiar, I guess maybe we should talk about the motivation for bootstrapping a compiler first. So you were mentioning to me that this is something that only comes up if you're a self-hosted compiler, which is to say a compiler that is implemented in the language that the compiler is compiling to. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct. So for example, I think the main problem is that as long as you're using a different language, every time you introduce a new feature in your language, nothing changes from the perspective of building your code base, like the compiler code base. But if your compiler code base is written in the language itself, and you want to use these new features, it's easy to see, right, that you have an old version of your compiler. But now, for example, in Zig, we are adding a new for loop syntax soon. And once we do that, you try to compile the new compiler code base, but there's the new syntax that your old compiler build doesn't support, and you get an error. So now you have to strategize about this stuff. Right. So like Rock's compiler is written in Rust, and we use various different versions of Rust. So and then the plan is never to self-host. So we're, we're not going to run into this. <laughs> but like what we do, I saw in uh, Andrew's blog post where he explained like kind of, you know, the motivations and, and all this stuff. He mentioned one of the use cases that I'd never thought about before. But once I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that is a, a, an important consideration, which is what happens if you're doing something like a, a git bisect. So you're like, there's some bug at some point in the past, and I need to go back and try the build on a bunch of different commits to see what happened. So like in our Rust-based thing, we have this little config file that basically says like, hey, I want to switch between these like different Rust releases. And we make sure that we only ever are using like a, an official like stable release of Rust with all of our builds. Now, if we were you know, building our own compiler, I can see how that like insisting on only ever building your compiler from a past stable release version of that compiler seems like it could be pretty limiting. And maybe that's not something that is, I don't know, desirable or, or like a, a viable solution to that particular problem. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's doable, I guess, but it's definitely not optimal. And the bisect case is, it's definitely a good example, especially if you plan to have like a rocky development process in the sense that you plan to add new features, change them, maybe take them out. So like you... you we want to experiment with the language, which is the situation that we're in. So if we were past 1.0, maybe we wouldn't care as much because we wouldn't plan to introduce breaking changes. But now it's the time to add breaking changes, and we want to try out the new features that we add to the language. So from the zig between one week and the next, we want to see breaking changes. And that you would need to not only... so. From the bisect perspective, actually, you know what? Let me start from the original example that I brought up, which is a simplified version of that, right? You've been 
way for a week. And another contributor has implemented new for loop syntax and also has implemented new for loop syntax. So you have your old build of the compiler. You try to build uh, your git pool, try to build latest the latest commit, and it fails because your compiler sees a for loop syntax that doesn't exist yet in its version, right? Right. So now what's your plan? If nobody has set up a bootstrap procedure for you, like a well-defined one, your only option at this point is to open the git log or, I don't know, ask uh, on IRC and see which is the commit that has introduced support for the new for loop syntax, hopefully without the living world one, but hasn't used the new for loop syntax yet in the compiler. So there's support, but but it's not used in the compiler yet, code in the compiler code base. So you build, you check out that commit, build the compiler from that commit, and now you have a Z compiler that supports the new syntax. So now one last jump, you can build the latest commit. If you have four or five features, that's four or five jumps, though. <laughs> yeah, and those presumably could be pretty hard to find. I mean, like, I'm, I'm trying to think how I would, like, literally track down the exact commit that introduced the feature before it had actually been used in the compiler. And I think the only answer is I would have to go look at the closed or merged pull requests and find, like, on GitHub and find one that, you know, search for, like, you know, four syntax, try to find one that was merged, and then, you know, grab the last commit out of that. Which, yeah, if you're trying, if you're in the middle of a bisect, that's a total disaster. That's not at all the workflow that I want. I want to just be able to bisect and then at every step, ideally, just, you know, have it run a script that automatically tests to see if my bug is reproduced or not. And that would just destroy my flow. I think it's interesting, by the way, that I think it's important to draw a distinction here between like what we're doing with Rock and what Zig is doing with self-hosting from the perspective of wanting to i guess the term people use is dog fooding like a short for eating your own dog food like to see how it tastes which is to say that like you know i I think someone could make a case and based on the number of comments i've seen on social media which just really span the entire spectrum of takes on this (laughs) i imagine someone has posted this somewhere someone might make the case that well just every single time you introduce a new feature Zig should either have a policy of do not use that feature in the compiler until there's another stable release. So even though it's available, just use a lot of discipline to make sure no one ever uses it. And I don't know how you would enforce that. Maybe like, I guess with CI, you could do that, like enforce that it's an older build of the compiler or something. And or make sure that every time you introduce a new feature, you do a release so that you can always have some exact past version to access. And I guess the sort of lighter weight version of that, but w- which still is is bad for your workflow. Actually, sorry, let me, let me, before I talk about the lighter weight idea that I don't think would work, I think there's two problems with that. But again, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. One problem that I can see with that is, again, it's limiting, right? Zig is pre 1.0, you know, Russ is way post 1.0. Like you want to try out new things and that includes before releasing them. And, you know, so if people like us, like we're in the rock project, we use Zig and we're always on the, the stable channel. We're never like building Zig from source and we want it to be that way. <laughs> we don't want a, like a nonstop, you know, s- stream of releases, all of which we're going to have to like potentially upgrade to. We would rather have there be like a small number of releases where we kind of know what we're getting ourselves into. So I don't think that would be great. Just like release all the time. Also because releases are time consuming, but they're not free. And the other thing would be, if I'm imagining, you know, Zig uh, saying like, well, let's just not use these new features until the next release happens. Well, then how do you try them out? 
and you know be confident in whether or not you actually want to use them in release at least from the perspective of like the compiler authors so it seems like you get sort of I don't know, some combination of like less good data on how nice the feature is to use because the people implementing it don't get to try it. At least don't get to try it for real. They could play around with it in side projects, I guess, but but not on the actual development work they're doing day to day. And or you have to just like spam a lot of releases out there that you don't want to be and that maybe consumers of Zig like me would prefer that you didn't. But are there more considerations there that I haven't I don't know, <laughs> thought of there? You are totally on point with the perspective that we definitely do want to use new features in the compiler because it's a good bit code base written in zig i don't know maybe the biggest maybe not but certainly one of the biggest and the people who work on the zig compiler are you know probably the people who have the most experience writing zig so their opinion is well informed and it's nice to give them an opportunity to test drive the features like, for example, I've been doing a little bit of advent of code in Zig. I would not use the advent of code as the best benchmark for a Zig feature, for example. Not because it's bad, right? Advent of code, it's fun, but it you don't really do proper software engineering when you're doing advent of code, right? You're just racing to get an answer and then you can delete your program because it's not useful anymore. Zig tries to be more focused on good software engineering. So your program should like survive being run once successfully. Another problem with making like many releases is that we always have a lot of in-flight PRs. So I think if we had like a very, I don't know, let, let's, let's call it a blocking process for adding new language features. I think it would be annoying for people who have these serious PRs that are always in flight because then they would have to every single time probably wait for the release to happen, then rebase, then try it around the tests again. And in reality, up until now, well, now it's not a problem either, but before when we had two compiler implementations, a Zig one self-hosted, and also we maintained a C++ implementation of the compiler, the, the old one, the one that we call, well, the bootstrap compiler, we never had this issue because every time there was a new feature in the compiler, also, this also applies to bug fixes, uh, to certain critical bug fixes, but talking about language features, I guess it's easier. But in any case, every time one of those came around, you could you could always build starting from the C++ implementation, and it was fine from a user's perspective. The annoying part about that setup is that whenever somebody added a new language feature, they had to implement it twice. Once in the self-hosted compiler, once in the C++ compiler. Right. So this is basically like, you know, in the same way that Rock doesn't have this problem because the Rock compiler is implemented in a different language than Rock itself. As long as you've still got that C++ code base around, you can be in that same boat where you can just build from the C++ compiler. But yeah, that means if you want that to continue being true, <laughs> then yeah, every time you add a new feature, you got to add it to the self-hosted compiler that everybody likes working with. And then also in the legacy compiler that's just used for bootstrapping. Exactly. As long as it's a language feature that is by the compiler itself, which as I stated, it's something that we want to do, although it doesn't apply to every single feature. For example, I've been working on the automated doc generator system that uh, we call it autodoc so you know you feed it source code it reads like C function signatures doc comments and then produces a nice searchable website and thankfully that doesn't need to work in the bootstrap compiler so i could all work with only zig and it was easier there's also some language features that are simply are not being used like async await it's like 
consider not a super good fit, especially because it's still experimental, like the, the design is not final. So that's another feature that's not strictly required, but there are a lot more that are definitely nice to have and make total sense in the compiler code base. And the C++ implementation was very useful from that perspective. But now we don't have it anymore. Now we have a different plan that people on Hacker News had very strong opinions about. <laughs> yeah, so... Before we get into that, so the, the lightweight thing that I mentioned earlier, this like idea, which seems like it would be, I don't know, like a partial fix, but not as nice as what you ended up with, at least it doesn't sound as nice to me, would be essentially what if rather than doing a whole release, you just had a policy of like, I don't know, tag discipline for lack of a better term. So like basically you just say every single time you add a new language feature, you have to make a, a tag in Git so you know exactly where that commit is. And now when you're doing the old bisect thing. Now, that sounds like better than not having that, obviously, but I can already see a couple of problems with that. One is, it seems like it would be pretty easy to mess up. Like if you add a new feature and you forget to add the tag, then, I mean, I guess you can always go back and add it after the fact, after someone's like, hey, you know, where's this thing? But more to the point, it seems like it would be not conducive to automation. Because again, if you're bisecting, like the my favorite bisect workflow is where I give it a script and I'm like, Hey, bisect, I figure what the subcommand is, but I always have to look it up, but it's like, here's this little script, run it. If it's exit code is zero, then that means this commits good. If the exit code is non-zero, then that means this commit is bad. And here you go. Have at it. I'm going to go get lunch. And then when I come back, you will hopefully tell me which commit was the problem. But if you need to, in the middle of that, go check out like an other version of your own repo, that doesn't seem so nice anymore. And I mean, maybe you could, like hack around that by having the bisect script be like, okay, I'm going to CD into this other directory and then like check out the thing on that directory. But then again, it's like, how do you know which tag to check out? And I guess uh, at that point, you also need to have like a, I don't know, like a .txt file or something in like the root of your project so that you can like know which commit to go get for the compiler and like all of these things. It sounds like you could hack something together that that would work, but it just doesn't sound to me as nice as what you ended up with. <laughs> but I don't know if that was discussed. I don't think we discussed it because we were interested in having a process that was a fixed number of steps. Because what you just described, it also depends on what you have on your machine. Because let me think about it for a moment. If you, you could definitely, okay, you, you're, you're doing a git bicep. You have your, the latest version of the compiler built, but there's an issue with it. So you want to jump back a few comments. Okay, so you want that version of Zig. Now, how do you build that version of Zig? I guess you have to download maybe a release. But if you don't have that, you have to follow a chain starting from something that you do have, which worst case means starting from the last commit that had the C++ compiler in it. So you would need to have this little like txt file that's like hey here's the tag that was used to build me but there might be need to be multiple jumps where like your script might need to say i was built with this thing but then when i go back to that thing it's like oh well in order to build me you actually need an even earlier version yeah and maybe you have it and if you have it you're lacking but if you don't then you need to resolve that dependency right so you might actually need to build multiple versions of the compiler which again, from a workflow perspective, now granted, once you have that, maybe they're in cache somewhere. I don't know, exactly know how that works in, in the case of Zig, but and maybe you don't need to rebuild them again. But yeah, I mean, again, from a workflow perspective, like I don't want to be waiting for multiple builds of the compiler just to do my bisect. I would much rather just be like, okay, just bisect back to here and ideally just be able to somehow magically run a version of the compiler that's already checked out for me as soon as I bisect to that commit. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely doable, but it does introduce a bunch of complexity. It's kind of like managing migrations in a database, right? Because if you want to follow this strategy and maybe optimize it a little bit, you could maybe write down somehow, right? Maybe you could engineer an automated system, but you could write down when a newer version of the compiler is still retrocompatible with an old one. Like, for example, if you add a support for new syntax for for loops while still also supporting the old one, then you can still use the newer compiler to build the older one. But if you remove support for the old syntax, so like you take away features, then now you cannot build backwards anymore. So sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, and it's a lot of complexity. And yeah, if you can avoid it, it's probably better. Right. Like clearly the nicest user experience is whenever I check out a given commit, everything I need to build the compiler for that commit is already in my repo right there. Like I don't need to go hop over to any other commits. I don't need to download any past releases. I'm just like, I run one build command and it's like, cool, there you go. I I have built the compiler for you and I had everything I needed right here in that checkout. That's the best for Bisect. And it's also, I mean, if it's the best for Bisect, it's also going to be really nice no matter what commit you're checking out in theory, which leads me to something that I definitely saw multiple times, which is, I'm going to bust out a why don't you just on this one. Why don't you just compile the Zig compiler to C? And then you will have, you know, and you check in that C card and it's like, it's like having your old C++ bootstrap compiler, except that, you know, it's auto-generated so you don't have to maintain it. Why don't you just do that? Yeah, right. At least on paper, definitely be the most preferable option because, yeah, you have C source code, maximally portable, auto-generated, so we don't have to write it ourselves every time. Also, I should add, the problem with maintaining, implementing the same feature twice is also that the Bootstrap compiler doesn't have the same architecture as the self-hosted compiler. It's an older code base that had has survived a bunch of changes and evolutions in the language, so it's messy. And I would argue probably that if people in the Z community were really good at writing C++ code, we probably wouldn't be bothering with Z. <laughs> right? So it's a messy C++ code base, which adds to the friction. So yeah, auto-generating it with C is awesome in many ways. It has only one issue. We cannot build... So the way this would work is that today, Zig has a C backend. So you can feed a Zig program to the Zig compiler and obtain a, a C file. I don't. I think it's a C, it builds everything into a single C file that implements the same program that you can give then to a C compiler and you get the same program. Now, the problem is that our support for this feature, so I guess you could call it like transpilation to C to some degree, is that we translate to C only after we have resolved comp time. And we use comp time to do multi-platform things. So when you make a build of the Z compiler or any Z program... Sorry to interrupt. Just some people might not know what comp time is who are listening. Do you want to just like brief tangent on, on what comp time is in Zig? Yeah, uh, you're right. So... Comp time is how Zig implements metaprogramming. We don't have macros. We don't have proper generics. We have one unified system where basically the language can do a little bit more with compile time known things. So you can do reflection. If you use any language where you do runtime reflection, we can do that, but only for things that are known at compile time. There is no runtime type in, in information in Zig. 
But we can use some of the same constructs and you get from that basically the same functionality that other languages offer you through generics and macros. And that's what we use also to implement our multi-platform support. So we have a comp time switch, a comp time statement that, for example, selects the right OS support based on what platform you're trying to target. Like, so if you target Linux, you get Linux with Ellipse or in any case, support for Linux style syscalls. If you're targeting something else, you get that something else, Windows or whatever else. The problem is that this selection happens before the C backend kicks in. So the C backend doesn't have the opportunity of seeing all the code. It only sees the result of doing this comp time analysis, which means that a C build of a Zeek program only works for one platform. It's not multi-platform. In other words, the Zeek compiler is unable to output C code with macros, with C macros that correspond to, that are equivalent to comp time expressions in the original Zeek code, which is probably a very hairy problem if to ever support, among other things. So we don't have that ability today. That's why we can't use C. So if I, let me just like see if I can restate it to check my own understanding. So basically the issue is like, let's say that I'm running on a, on a Mac and I'm like, cool, I want, I've got my Zig compiler source code. I've got the right version of Zig so I can build it. And I'm like, I want to spit out a C version of this Zig compiler and that I'll check into the repo. Great. So I run it. And the first thing that it does is it executes its comp time stuff, says, oh, I see that you're on a Mac. Great. I will continue down that Mac specific code path. And the rest of this compilation will all be Mac stuff. And now we'll emit C code. And it's like, great. I now have a Mac specific C code <laughs> that only builds a Mac version of the Zig compiler. But that's not what I want. What I want to check into the repo is something that's cross-platform because the repo might get checked out by somebody running on Linux. And that would not go well for them. But of course, if they were to do the same thing, Again, because of the way that CompTIME works, the Zig compiler would spit out C code that is specific to Linux, not cross-platform. Now, in theory, hypothetically, there could exist some world in which Zig's CompTIME gets translated automatically to C macros such that it does output a C program that actually completely does the same thing as the Zig program. But A, I don't even know if that's possible because I just don't know what the limitations of C macros are. Well, even assuming it were possible, it's a fact that the compiler does not do this today. So that's just not a viable solution. That's exactly right. I think it's a very hard problem. And in any case, as you said, it's something that we don't have today. So it would, it would require a serious investment of effort. And we don't want to invest too much into the bootstrapping procedure. We kind of want to find a path of least resistance to that, which is why we went with the choice that we went with. Uh, so <laughs> more attention. No, no, wait, but I have one last thing to say. So to give credit to your point, we could also, since Zig knows how to do cross compilation really well, you can from your Mac, so continuing with your example, also create a build for Linux and a build for Windows, but also it depends on the CPU, right? So you could create 32, 64, ARM versions for all the major platform OSs, and then you would have support for everything. Here's another problem. <laughs> your, your repo is going to be huge. Yeah, because this is a automated transition process. So the C code that comes out is like not nice. It's the result of translating automatically uh, Zig source code. It turns out that every file is about 80 megabytes, eight zero. And you multiply that by number of architectures, number of OSs, 
and that's a lot of file. <laughs> that's a lot of data. Yeah, especially because I mean, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever um, had this experience before, but it can be legit very frustrating to try and download a gigantic repo. Like if there's a source code repo that just is, you know, like multiple gigabytes large, it's just like that's actually not a great. <laughs> experience when you're like a first time contributor cloning it i mean yeah you can always just be like okay i'm just gonna you know go wander off and like let this thing finish cloning but it definitely if it takes long enough that i'm you know feeling distracted i'm gonna go wander off to do something else there's a chance that i just don't bother submitting that bug fix because you know it's like i thought it was going to be a quick thing but you know what never mind i don't i don't want to wait for this thing and you know that's maybe a a small consideration, but there's also, I mean, there's various other reasons that uh, having a gigantic repo is not desirable. Also, I don't know, I guess it depends specifically how, you know, in which way you make it big, but also if every operation is slowed down, then your Git bisects become annoying. Any operation on, on the repository becomes more annoying than it should be. We actually experienced some of this in the website repository because I mentioned earlier the auto-generated doc thing which basically doesn't immediately produce statically rendered HTML. It produces a JSON payload that then we load into a um, single page application thing. The JSON blob was pretty beefy, not 80 megabyte beefy. Even I think it was quote unquote only 10 megabyte beefy, I think. And yeah, that bloated up the website repository by a lot to the point where you could see that CI runs would take two or three minutes more simply because cloning the repository would require more time every time the CI ran. So yes, it is possible that you could compile to C for every different architecture and just check in all of that generated C to the tune of, I mean, well over uh, multiple hundreds of megabytes. Uh, like that, that's for sure. Maybe even like half a gig. Which again does not seem desirable. Okay, so I think I think we're finally ready to talk about what you actually did. Uh, I'm going to do a little drum roll, <laughs> <laughs> which is WebAssembly. Right. Although that's like everybody, it's going to be right in the title of the episode, I'm sure. So everybody's going to know. <laughs> but but we'll pretend that's a big surprise reveal. <laughs> and there's like a blog post and all this stuff out about it. But yeah. So do you want to just explain like how WebAssembly solves this problem? Sure. And to be clear, it's still a matter of find the path of least resistance. It really is just a very convenient sweet spot for us. That's what it is. Basically, we use LLVM. So we have our own backend that can output C code. We are working on other backends that can output entirely written by us. They can output, for example, x86-64 machine code, etc. But the main backend for that is used for release builds that at least for the foreseeable future, will be used for release builds, is LLVM. So LLVM is a chunky dependency, but we're not getting rid of it anytime soon. And LLVM supports exactly one virtual machine target. And the nice thing about a virtual machine target is that it's kind of platform independent because the platform dependent bits are in the virtual machine interpreter or whatever environment you use to run the virtual machine bytecode. And that's WebAssembly. As somebody pointed out in the Z community, this is technically not correct because there's another virtual machine language supported by LLVM, which is PRV, but that's for programming GPUs. And oh yeah, that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's not. <laughs> and so what happens is that we compile the Z compiler to WebAssembly. We get a WebAssembly build. Now, WebAssembly by itself doesn't have 
access to a file system, to the network. It doesn't have any syscall around it. So if you're, for example, loading a WebAssembly binary in a web page, you can provide to it externally implemented functions. So you can basically, a WebAssembly module can expect that you provide, uh, I don't know, a way of getting standard input, a way of getting standard output, a way of accessing files, and you provide it and your WebAssembly module uses it. You could implement your uh, your own, like the, the, the interface on your own, or you could use uh, WASI, which is a standardized uh, way of doing that. It's basically mimics POSIX-style syscalls for WebAssembly, and it's standardized. And the nice thing is that we implement that in the Zig standard library. So we do already support WASI. So long story short, we build Zig more specifically for WASM-WASI, and that's it. And now we have a working Zig build in WebAssembly. All you need at that point is to have a WebAssembly something that can run WebAssembly for your host machine. And that we implemented by hand in C. I thought it was also pretty cool. Like, so you don't even need to tell people, hey, if you want to bootstrap the compiler, you got to have, you know, Wasmer or something installed. It's actually just like right there in the repo as well. Exactly. It's not even that big. I, I think it's a few, maybe a thousand lines of code, not even that many. I think Andrew and Jacob Lee, another contributor, worked on it for, I don't know, two or three weeks. And, and that's it. That, that, so to WebAssembly's credit, it's a nice VM. It's uh, self-contained. It's not overcomplicated. The interaction with WASI, at least in our, uh, in our case, was very nice. Also because our virtual, okay, I'll call it an interpreter, although I'm lying and I'll, I'll be more precise in a moment. Our WebAssembly interpreter doesn't even implement the full um, WASI spec. It only implements the subset that the Z compiler actually uses. The Z compiler doesn't open TCP calls, sorry, TCP sockets. So we don't have TCP support in it. We only have the exact list of syscalls that the Z compiler happens to use. And the day the Z compiler will need a new one, then we'll do the work to add it. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually, um, in Rock, we had a recent, it's funny how many things that you're, you're talking about have parallels to Rock. So one of which is that we actually just got done, I think this just landed, adding our own WebAssembly interpreter uh, to Rock's code base. Although in our case, it's just for testing. Like there are various different WebAssembly runtimes out there. And long story short, they do stuff that they have a trade-off that is kind of similar to LLVM in, in some cases uh, for our purposes, which is to say that they take a little bit longer to like interpret the code because they JIT it. And they, that makes it run faster, but it also means that it's a bigger dependency and it also takes longer to spin up. And we don't want to pay that cost. We would rather just like, you know, interpret it uh, straight on and try to you know, have our tests run faster and not have and remove a, a big dependency, which is kind of nice. But yeah, as it turned out, and shout out to Brian Carroll, who's like done all of the, not only did he do that, but he also made all of our like WebAssembly support in general work with the development backend, which... Funny enough, like you mentioned that Zig has like an x86 backend, so you can compile straight to x86 machine code and to ARM. We also have those, but they're they're pretty incomplete, except for the WebAssembly one. The WebAssembly one, thanks to Brian Carroll, is like 99% feature complete. It supports everything except 128-bit integers, uh, which just hadn't gotten around to. But because of that, we actually have this web REPL. If you go to rock-lang.org slash REPL, you can play around with it and it's just an online REPL that's completely works offline. Like you can turn off your internet connection after you've loaded the page and it will just completely work. And it's really fast because it's all just handwritten WebAssembly, not handwritten WebAssembly, it's WebAssembly that's being generated by the Rock compiler directly, not going through LLVM. Like when you load that that REPL in the browser, you're not getting LLVM at all. It's just the, the WebAssembly backend. 
And yeah, I, I just think it's like interesting how, I don't know, we have these like similar goals in some ways and then like uh, different goals in other ways. And yeah, some of these things like end up kind of lining up to end up wanting to like make your own WebAssembly interpreter. Like that's absolutely something I never would have guessed that would end up being in the Rock Compiler code base. And you, I don't imagine that was something you would ever guess would be in the Zig code base either. <laughs> but here we are. And something I guess that few people in the Internet Period Gallery would not have guessed either, judging from the reactions. <laughs> I found a couple of comments on this very interesting because like one comment was, like somebody was saying, Zig has a self-imposed Big O of one bootstrap policy. And somebody replies, oh, Zig's policy is bull. Why are they looking at it from that perspective? If you're a contributor, you want a big O of one bootstrap process. Like you don't want to do the full chain thing that we were describing in the beginning. You want to just run make and know that it always takes like three, four minutes and that's it. And you don't have to think about it. So that's a comment that really confuses me because I don't understand the perspective. Another comment, another type of uh, reaction that I saw where people are saying that, asking why WebAssembly? I guess for some people, they don't understand the practical, like the perspective that we have, like the, the, where we, the our situation. So they don't understand that WebAssembly is truly practical. It's just practical. And so they think, I guess, that we're using WebAssembly because it's cool. And so they think, oh my God, these guys are like, next they're going to do blockchain bootstrap. It's like, no, it's just a virtual machine target. Uh, somebody also said, but why WebAssembly? Why not Java? Java would have worked too, no? It's like, yeah, but we don't have anything that outputs Java yet, so we would have to make it. And then Andrew would have to implement a Java virtual machine. <laughs> I don't know. To be honest, I don't have experience. So who knows? Maybe Java is like you could do a you know minimal subset that's good enough. You know what? You make a backend that only outputs like move instructions. I don't know if you're familiar with the story where you can be Turing complete uh, just with move instructions. So like you only output one. It's kind of a joke. Uh, like I'm not being serious. I mean, like just uh, like all you need is NAND gates, you know. Yeah, something some yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly something like <laughs> this. So like you output your I don't know five gigabytes of move instructions, <laughs> but then your Java virtual machine <laughs> needs to be can only support only only needs to support one. I don't know. But like, we don't have that. So why do we do this? And, uh, and then there was somebody else saying, why don't you just use LLVM IR? Oh, yeah. We actually, okay, so funny story about LLVM IR. So the Rock Compiler, we do use this in a very localized way. So like LLVM IR, for those who don't know, this is basically like sort for LLVM intermediate representation. Also, LLVM itself originally stood for low level virtual machine, but it's not actually a virtual machine. It's just like, it's just a way, it's a compiler backend. So I think at this point, it, I think it's been retconned to be, it's no longer short for that. I think it's just LLVM is short for LLVM and that's it. <laughs> it's just letters now. But anyway, uh, so LLVM IR is basically their serialized format of like, here's LLVM's like representation of your, you know, the code that you wanted to compile. And so what we use this for is actually, so Rock's standard library is written in Zig. Uh, people always ask us, we have an FAQ entry for this. That's how often people ask us, why is the compiler written in Rust and the standard library is written in Zig? So just check out the FAQ and the repo if you're curious about that. But basically what we do is when we compile your Rock program, 
we want LLVM to be able to optimize the rock program and the standard library together because it can do a better job optimizing if it knows about everything, as opposed to like compiling one of them to a binary and then compiling the other one to a binary and then like stapling the binaries together. So what we do is we tell Zig, hey, Zig, output this entire standard library is LLVM IR. And then we tell LLVM, this is only for optimized builds because all this is like way too slow for a development build, at least by our standards. And then we say, okay, uh, now LLVM compile this rock application and then glue those two things together. And then LLVM optimize that whole unified chunk of standard library plus application. So that works quite well. Now, one of the things that we talked about doing is, um, so in Rock, we have this concept of platforms and applications. And without going into a whole lot of detail, what this basically means is it's kind of like a platform is like a framework, except that it's got more low-level stuff going on like behind the scenes. And so one of the ideas was, oh, well, what if we did the same thing with the platform? And we said, your platform can compile down to LLVM IR. And now you can get this whole program optimization of LLVM across not just your standard library and your application, but also your platform too. Now, granted, this is like much less useful than the standard library one, because usually the application and the platform interact at like a very small number of fixed points. And they're usually around IO. So there's not, they're not going to like optimize that much anyway. We're like, still, why not? Well, we found out why not. And it's because LLVM IR changes all the time. They have, they make breaking changes left and right. They don't make any stability guarantees about it. It's really just designed to be something where like the current and LLVM like makes major breaking releases all the time. Also, I think every six months ish. I mean, certainly they release every six months. And I think it's almost always breaking, if not always. So basically, if we were to like support this, then basically what we are setting ourselves up for is a scenario where in the future, LLVM comes out with a new release. And we will immediately have people saying, hey, LLVM came out with a new release. I want to use the new, the new version of this. Why doesn't Rock support the new LLVM format? Or what if they change their, their format and now it's like a total disaster? Or what if we have like an older platform that was built with the old binary format that's incompatible with the new binary format? Do we now need to ship every past version of LLVM with the Rock compiler just so that those old platforms still work? There's all of these like compatibility nightmares. Now, granted, if LLVM said, we are going to make a stability guarantee and we're going to make this format. And from now on, it will always be all future versions will be backwards compatible with this and all future releases of LLVM will be able to deal with all the older formats. That would be a different story. But in the absence of that, I mean, we'd just be setting ourselves up for just the, all this like pain and suffering for a pretty small amount of optimization. And I believe, if I remember right, that that instability of the IR format has to do with why Zig didn't go that direction too. Uh, yeah, for sure. I don't remember. I don't think we even tried to look at the size of uh, the LLVM IR. So could also be that it's too big. Or like I would guess it's probably less preferable than WebAssembly because with WebAssembly, the resulting binary is like 600 kilobytes compressed. So it's not a lot of data. So LLVM IR, I wouldn't know. Uh, there's also everything that you mentioned is true. Also, the fact that LLVM IR is not considered stable part of LLVM also means that every time they output a new patch version, they could introduce new changes. So now you get to build a chain of LLVMs on top of your compiler when you're you're bisecting. <laughs> not ideal. Not ideal at all, yes. Another thing that worth noting is that, and this isn't that big of a deal in our case, is that LLVM IR is not quite as portable as WebAssembly. Actually, now that I say this, 
that may not always be true. So right now, WebAssembly is always 32-bit. So you always have like four byte pointers. And so no matter what your target is, you always have the same pointer size. And so you know the, the code is like totally portable. But with LLVM IR, that's not the case. So we actually do, when we build this IR for just the standard library, which we do ahead of time, we do build two versions of it. One is a 64-bit version. The other is a 32-bit version. But thankfully, in Rock's case, those are the only differences that, that come up across the uh, across platforms. Yeah, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that's because you don't have a lot, like all the IO and system dependent stuff is in the platform for you, right? So when you're building a wrong code, it's mostly business logic. Well, our, so our standard library in particular is all data structures. There's no, like the rock standard library doesn't know how to do IO. That's like a, an important feature of the language. <laughs> exactly. While instead, if we do this with Zig, it's more akin, I guess, like to make a parallel with rock to compiling the platform layer. And that's where all the, you know, the, the beats, the constants, like the system dependent constants, they're all there. And in our case, LVM, we are able to output LLVM IR, since also you guys are using that feature, but that still comes after comp time runs. So we would still have a bunch of dependent stuff that isn't properly abstracted away in the LLVM IR. Because at the end of the day, it's we can only you're still targeting one specific platform, which is not exactly LLVM. It's the end machine. The and the only situation where you are targeting one platform that is quote unquote universal is when you're targeting an actual virtual machine like WebAssembly. So to draw an analogy to what we we're talking about with the um like why don't you just compile the C thing earlier, like you would need to compile to, you know, six plus different LLVM IRs. Whereas with with WebAssembly you just need to compile to one. Exactly. Cool. So I I remember one of the things that I saw come up in the discussion, which is operating system package managers. Like um for Debian, for example, uh you have aptitude. And how there was a little bit of a concern there about how some of them, Debian in particular, have a policy of, we will only accept your package into our repository if we can build it from source. And when we say build it from source, we mean the actual real source code that a human being wrote, not anything that's been auto-generated. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, you do. You do. I think they are mainly concerned with what's commonly known as the trusting trust problem where basically somebody could, in theory, add a piece of malicious code to the code base at some point and infect auto-generated data in a way where you don't see that behavior in normal code, you only see it in certain cases. And long story short, you need to preserve the, the chain of trust from a known starting point that you trust. And generally speaking, that's like a C compiler. So the idea is that you start from a C compiler and then you build your way up until the latest. And for example, in cases where there is no dedicated bootstrap process that works well for distributions, what they tend to have, well, what they technically, for example, have also when it comes to Zig today is the chain. So like today, if um, Debian wants to add Zig, one way that they can have a trusted build of Zig is to check out the latest version of Zig that still has the C++ code base, build that one, and then do the hopping, as we described earlier. I did see someone on Hacker News uh, commented that the way that OpenJDK does this is they actually have some sort of like pre-approved like blobs. Like they verify, I guess, by building themselves from source like ahead of time 
like this, I guess in OpenJDK's case, it's presumably some Java bytecode. And they say, okay, we verified this blob, you know, with this hash is valid and accepted. And so you're you're now allowed to have this blob in your, you know, as something that you're using to bootstrap because we've already verified it ahead of time manually. And then I guess you could do the same thing in Zig with WebAssembly in theory. Seems like it, you know, if it's okay for JDK, OpenJDK, it would probably be okay for Zig. Yeah, I obviously cannot speak for these maintainers, but you know what? So I think it's it might be worth explaining just one extra thing about how the bootstrap through WebAssembly process works. Because I think there's one thing that we didn't answer precisely. How the WebAssembly blob is built from our perspective, like when we do it for contributors. So not necessarily what um, distro maintainers would want, but in our case, what happens is that if you're the person implementing the new feature, when you commit the new feature, when you commit the breaking change, so I mentioned earlier for new for loop syntax. So you implemented the feature and now you are you change all the for loops in the compiler code base to the new syntax. When you do that, you also commit a new WebAssembly build of the compiler. And you can do that because you're the person working on it. You have done the incremental building because you're in the process. Like you should be in a, in a situation where you can build the latest version of SIG without too much issue. Again, this is like a, an advantage that you have as the person working on it in practice. So sometimes people find it, like the, find it confusing because it's like this uh, self-referential dependency, right? How can you build it if you need to have it first? In practice... The person working on it is in an advantageous situation. If, for example, you're working on it and somebody deletes the, a temporary build of the Z compiler on your computer, now you have to do the stepping stones thing. You have to do the chain. That, that's how it works. Okay, so you, you upload the new version of the WebAssembly build, which basically, if you think about it, acts as a simplified way of doing the chain. Like we do the chain, we just commit it to the repository so that you can always jump to the last step very easily, like directly, you can skip all the intermediate steps because you have the WebAssembly build at your disposal that's already checked in, which is, if you think about it, it's a stand-in, right, for the latest Z compiler always ready to be built easily. With these maintainers, maybe, so sure, they could do this. Maybe they could even do the same with Zig executables with the Zig executable itself, like they save the Zig executable, they do the chain, and occasionally they like they save a checkpoint, like uh, in, like in Super Mario, <laughs> where you, you start right from the checkpoint. That works. There are probably practical considerations where probably it would make sense also for them to save the WebAssembly version so that they can then build it for different platform instead of only x86 or having to save multiple copies. But conceptually, I think it's roughly the same. So then the practical details, I guess, they're up to them to figure out. Yeah, I mean, okay. So if I were to sort of uh, sum up, it, it sounds like overall, I'm probably going to miss something in here, but it seems like, okay, so zooming all the way out, the motivation here is you want to be able to build the compiler the Zig compiler using Zig from any individual commit in the repo without needing people to have a previous version of the Zig compiler installed, without needing them to have a WebAssembly runtime or anything else. They can just check out the repo, go to a particular commit, or if they're doing a git bisect, you know, bisect goes to a particular commit. And on that commit, you can you have all the tools you need to build the compiler from itself. And you want to be able to do that without having to generate a whole bunch of C source code, which would take up like half a gigabyte plus perhaps, or a bunch of LLVM IR 
<laughs> blobs that would uh, also have uh, take up a bunch of space, and on top of that, would break every time LLVM does even a patch release potentially. And WebAssembly solves all those things because it's cross-platform, it's portable, you can already generate it today, unlike something like Java bytecode. Because it's a virtual machine, you don't need one version for every different target. And because WebAssembly virtual machine is so simple, you can actually, you're able to implement your own interpreter for that uh, in a couple of weeks that can just sit in the repo without having to have a, a full-blown third-party dependency. Did I get all that right? Did I miss anything? You did get all of that right. Although, as I mentioned earlier, I lied when I said that we have an interpreter. We don't exactly have that. That's an interesting bit. So originally we had an interpreter, but it was kind of slow. And in the process of trying to speed this up, because again, it's it's a matter of usability of developer experience, right? You're the developer, you git pull. So here's the idea. You pull latest zig. You don't even want to ask yourself the question, did somebody add some new feature that might make my build fail? What I'll do is that I'll just use the bootstrap procedure regardless. I still have my slightly older version of Z that I could use. I'm not even going to use that. I'm just going to do git pull and do the bootstrap procedure just so that I don't have to think about it at all. So if your bootstrap procedure takes, I don't know, 20 minutes, I mean, you'll survive, but it's not optimal. So speeding it up, it's a worthwhile goal. And in the process of doing this, the interpreter became a compiler that compiles WebAssembly to C code. This seems silly. <laughs> okay, now now we're getting into meme territory. That, <laughs> now... <laughs> it's funny, yes. So what happens is that instead of being an interpreter, now there's a wasm2c file which it happens to have a name of another popular project, but it's entirely handwritten by us. So it has nothing to do with a wasm to see that you might have seen in the wild. It reads wasm bytecode and produces C code. It spits out zig1.c, and then we run zig1.c through a C compiler, because it turns out that this is faster than interpreting the WebAssembly. Yes, it's a bit meme but the point is that it's a performance thing. If somebody knew how to make, with a reasonable amount of effort, a WebAssembly interpreter that was faster than this procedure, then we would prefer that. But that's how things are. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I mean, okay, so I understand the reasoning, but it does seem like, I mean, if you ever want to actually implement a real interpreter, like at least based on our experience, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it was uh, actually that much code. So you always could. That's always an option. Just putting it out there. Yeah, but it has to be fast. It has to be faster than this procedure. I think right now it takes like four minutes on like a normal, you know, good, reasonably good dev machine to do this. Okay, that's fair. So yeah, I mean, we're just using it for tests. But um, yeah, it might be a different story if you're trying to build an entire, interpret an entire compiler with it. Yeah, because then we have, the, the, the problem is that then it has to run over the entire Z code base because like it has to actually build Z. And yeah, that, that probably has to run comp time. So like we, we have to, it's not like a short run. It, it's a pretty, I don't know, it's a, not a sprint, it's a marathon that version of Z has to do. One interesting consideration from that perspective is that, so you take a single C build of Zig using our C backend and it produces a 80 megabyte C source file. Again, kind of bloated when it comes to code size because it's machine generated, but that's what we have. 
you if you compress that file, I think it using Zlib, I think it becomes something like eight, nine megabytes. But if you build the WebAssembly version, the WebAssembly version becomes 600 kilobytes. And, and that WebAssembly version, functionally speaking, implements the same thing as the C code base, actually more because it's a little bit more multi-platform, but again, because it's a virtual machine. But here's the, the, my point is that in a sense, WebAssembly in this case happens to act as a form of compression for the C code that's more efficient than just running Zlib over the source files. It's a funny side effect. It's um, not intended, but but it's funny that by going through WebAssembly, we can produce a smaller, a more compressed version of the C compiler that's also multi-platform, and we can chuck it in the repository, and it doesn't bloat it too much. I think what I'm hearing here is WebAssembly is the new Zlib. I think we should end on that note. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about it, WebAssembly has the opportunity of performing, in a sense, like semantic compression in a way that poor Zlib can't. And then you can run Zlib on the WebAssembly file on top of that. So, That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. It just so happens, like we weren't chasing this. This is just a funny consideration that... Yeah, we stumbled upon. I mean, it's cool that like, you know, hearing this whole design process and like all the different things that you considered and all the different things that you tried, you know, the, the reasoning makes a lot of sense at the end of the day. And I think when people are confronted with that, you know, it's kind of understandable that their, their first reaction is, uh, well, that's obviously like over-engineered or silly, or they're just trying to be contrarian and do something weird. But actually, it no, it, it seems like, like you said, the most practical choice given all the constraints that you're dealing with. And I mean, maybe it would be great if people didn't always post the first thing that jumps into their head, but you know, this is the internet. What are you going to do? I feel like there's a correlation between these things. I think it's funny, and I think it's something that it's worth taking a moment to think about it even, not just for complaining about other people's behavior, but also for a moment to think about our own behavior. Because I've become vaguely a little bit familiar with this bootstrap stuff now because I've been working on the... CI for the Zig project. We had trouble recently because we were using drone.io, which then got acquired, which then gave us, I don't know, like a month and then things stopped working. I don't know what happened, but in any case, I had to redo some a chunk of the CI infrastructure. And that made me more familiar with the build strips. I didn't want to become more familiar, but I had to. <laughs> and that kind of touches right upon the, the bootstrap process. So that made me think about all this stuff. And also, one. so to recap the advantages of this new bootstrap process versus the old one. The old one was based on C++, and it required us to maintain two implementations and to build but to bootstrap Zig from the C++ code base required 11 plus gigabytes of RAM. And the reason for that is because the old implementation, well, it just didn't free stuff. One of the many reasons why the old code base is not nice. 11 gigabytes is annoying for CI systems because sometimes you have a machine with like 8 gigabytes and then it just runs out of memory and your build dies, right? So that's the old version. The new version with the WebAssembly process requires only four gigabytes of RAM. It uses, like for a release build, it takes, I think, 3.2 gigs of RAM, something like this, which is, yeah, it's much more tractable. It actually makes a difference, not just for CI systems, but also for contributors who have, you know, not super beefy machines or like 32-bit systems. Now, 
they unlock the ability to, to build Zig on their machine and contribute. It's roughly the same amount of time. I think it's slightly faster, but like not terribly so. But then again, it, it wasn't so bad. And it's reasonable enough from a development perspective. And we still, we don't have to implement anything twice anymore because now the double implementation is done automatically by our WebAssembly backend. And so these two things are nice. These are the actual facts for us as users of the bootstrap process. People on the internet, they unfortunately don't care about this perspective. Well, they don't even know this perspective. All they see from the outside is these a bit mystical Ouroboros problem of the language trying to build itself. And they reason about this from that perspective. And again, when I used to not know much about this stuff, I would also wonder how bootstrapping works and all the self-referential problems and how interesting that is, etc. And, and reason about it in abstract terms. The problem is that reasoning about it in abstract terms is useless. What matters is the developer experience. That's really what matters. And there's a lot of practical things that you completely miss out that you don't realize if you only think about abstract terms. For example, the fact that the person working on new features always happens to have a, a recent build of Zig on hand that allows them to always build, uh, to always reliably produce a WebAssembly build that they can commit alongside their change. That's a practical thing that's real that actually makes the thing non-paradoxical. And so people, I feel like, think about this in abstract terms and then become very opinionated about their abstract ideas. Well, you should do the opposite. If you don't know how to think about it in practical terms, you should have the softest opinion possible. Yeah, totally agree. Well, now if we can just get the rest of the internet to agree with us, then uh, we'll be all set. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, wow. This is great. Honestly, didn't think we would end up staying on the same topic for the entire hour, but there's just a lot there. It's pretty cool. Bootstrapping is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Loris, thank, thank you so much for the conversation. I learned some more things about this and hopefully people listening learned some things too. Yeah, it was also fun. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. <laughs>